Church, would you bow your heads with me as we go before our God in prayer? Would you pray with me? Almighty Father, your kindness is so great to us in giving us Jesus Christ. We come to you today knowing that you who did not withhold your own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? In light of your giving nature, O oh God, we pray this morning that you would give favor to our church. Father, we, as we pray together, we remember that today and tomorrow, many in our church will have a change in their routines to celebrate Christmas. We ask that you would give us during this week, during these days, a greater appreciation for Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this for all in our body, that our minds would be fixed on Christ this week. Father, we pray this for members like Jay Meyer and Shirley Myatt, David Salcedo and Brian Pence, Spence. Father, we pray that across this church that we would fill our hearts and minds with worship of Jesus Christ this week. Father, we, we pray also for those who are from us that are traveling this week. We think of people like Stephen and Janisa Worley or Caleb and Leah Batchelor or, or Kevin and Nancy Rummel. Father, as many in our body spread out over a variety of places this week, may we be a light for Jesus Christ as we pass others on the way. May we speak clearly and graciously about our Savior, O God. Father, we pray for the many members in our body who are working and uh, witnessing and interacting with their coworkers, even around this Christmas season. Father, we think of how many among us are, are in workplaces where we can be Christ-like in the way that we act. We pray for Tony Boutwell, Karen Stepankas, Tammy Harris, or Kurt Marshall, many others. Oh Lord, let us work alongside of our coworkers and employers with such kindness and yet such clarity about the gospel that others would want to know about the hope that we have, the hope that's so present here during Christmas, the hope of Christ that's within us. Father, even as we pray for the gospel to go out through us, we also pray that it would go out through others as well. And so this morning we pray for other churches like the Evangelical Protestant Church of Brussels, Father, we pray for Pastor Benjamin Egan as he preaches this morning in Brussels from Isaiah 40. Father, would you use Ben's words mightily in their church? May that healthy church that's completely distant from us and yet speaking the same gospel message, may they grow up in health. May they have an influence in Belgium to see more of the knowledge of Jesus Christ spread, not just in our corner of the world, O oh God, but that this good gospel would spread across Belgium, across Europe, across the world, because of your kindness and grace. 
Father, we now come together to your word. We, your people, need to hear from your word. We pray that you would work in us as we open your word this morning. Father, we pray that you'd give us the gift of hope. We pray that we'd be transformed. We pray that we'd brought to worship, be brought to worship as we think on Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd work in us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Christmas is upon us. Trees are in place, lights are set, stockings are hung, music is being played on your Bluetooth device, and gifts are likely under the tree, unless you're one of those strange families that withholds them until Christmas morning. Nostalgia and hope are just thick in the air, aren't they? They're flickering like warm candles in the darkness. Nostalgia is that looking back on the past with a sense of longing. And hope is that looking forward to the future with a sense of expectation. Well, Christmas time in our culture capitalizes on these longings and desires. And yet, I would argue that the season of Christmas in our culture, as sweet as it is, can stir up longings within us that itself it can never really satisfy. Surely you recognize this. I mean, we see this even visually. This, the Christmas tree will lose its needles eventually, if it hasn't already in Florida. And it will be taken out to the curb. The, the presents tomorrow morning will be unwrapped, and not only will you immediately throw all the wrapping paper in a bag to throw out, but the presents themselves will just last a matter of hours for some of you and days and weeks for others before they themselves begin to be broken and worn down. The lights will come down and decorations will be put away. What a wonderful thing for me to be telling you Christmas morning. <laughs> the end is coming. <laughs> but it's true. The, the, the feelings that accompany this time of year as sweet as they are, are arguably often very short-lived. And I would suggest that uh, the world around us can easily arouse within us a sense of nostalgia and hope, but can it really deliver on those longings? Does the Christmas spirit have the resources to satisfy what it stirs up in us? Today, I want to make an argument for a Christian view on the hope of Christmas. Not the hope of the Christmas season, per se, but the hope of what Christmas represents. A hope that's honestly more arresting than any seasonal feeling that we might enjoy. Here's my argument. Because of Jesus Christ, Christmas offers a hope that is beyond you, over you and before you. Because of Jesus Christ, Christmas offers a hope that is beyond you, over you, and yet before you. Now, to make this argument, I'm going to take us to one of the maybe more unexpected books of the Bible to use during the Christmas season. We're going to go back to a book of the Bible that focuses on judgment. 
That's right. You heard Mark read the text just a minute ago, which, uh, by the way, Matthew's gospel quotes and telling us that this text is speaking about the birth of Jesus Christ. But today we're not going to the birth story. We're going to go back to the source of the prophecy, which is a book that's all about judgment called Micah. If you brought your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Micah. We'll be in chapter 5. If you're new to church, Micah is just on the first half of the Bible in what Christians call the Old Testament, all the books of the Bible that were written before the coming of Jesus Christ. They're looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. This book was written probably around uh, 720 uh, B.C. or in the 730s B.C. Uh, This short book is there towards the end of the Old Testament. Now, if you've been in our church for the last several weeks, you'll know we have providentially found ourselves in some strange and heavy texts this Advent season. So this book is a fitting end to this month. You see, the book of Micah functions in the Old Testament somewhat like trial notes of a lawsuit in which God's prophet Micah is presenting a prosecution case, detailing the evidence to the courtroom of why the people of God were to be judged. That's what's happening. In fact, you could just scan through even the the headings of this short book, and you'll notice immediately God's people were in trouble. They haven't honored God, and God is going to judge them. You know, when we uh, moved to Florida, uh, we became acquainted with the beautiful and often changing weather of South Florida, and I've especially appreciated the storm fronts that uh, come through Uh, our weather systems. It's totally unlike the weather uh, where I was living before I came. I've learned that you can just watch the sky at times and just see a a rolling thunderstorm just, just filling the horizon. And it's coming to bear down with its thunder and its lightning and rain. Well, the book of Micah, the Old Testament, is a bit like that thunderstorm rolling in over Israel. God's anger for sin is about to rain down like lightning. Perhaps you've seen a storm like that. Perhaps you can think of times when in the middle of that storm or that cloudy day, uh, I wonder if you can imagine this, there's that that patch of, of sunshine that just kind of breaks through the clouds so that you can kind of see the, the rays of the sunlight shooting through. Well, if, if Micah's prophecy is that storm cloud, then today we're going to walk over to that patch of sunlight that's breaking through, and we're going to just trace the rays of light up to their source, and we're going to stare at the sun himself. You see, Micah, uh, in chapter 5, the, the storm of the coming judgment is, is just broken for just a moment as the prophet just pauses and he prophesies the coming hope of Christmas. He offers hope in really an otherwise dark landscape. Micah gives us a warm candle that is flickering in the darkness. And he tells Israel that for them, the hope of the coming Messiah is beyond you, over you, and before you. So listen to the prophecy again that, that Mark just read from us. Uh, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So first God is saying to Israel, the hope I will bring is beyond you. What do I mean by this? Well, I mean it's an external hope. It's not an internal hope. I wonder if you saw that in the text. The prophet highlights Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a famous city now, but it wasn't before. It was an obscure town in an unremarkable province, Ephrathah. Now, I should note, by the way, there's this, this theme of connecting back to the king, David. This was David's birthplace, and the Messiah would come from his line. There's actually a whole list of connections to David across this chapter, but that will have to wait for a different sermon. But this morning, I want you to especially notice how this hope is not coming from a place of significance. That's the point of this text. This hope is not coming from any of the large cities in the area. This hope is not coming from Jerusalem, the city of David. No, this is coming from little Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you see there in the text, was too little to be among the clans of Judah. So this, this word little in the Hebrew isn't actually the normal word for little. It actually might be better translated as trifling. It's diminutive. It's so unimportant that it's trivial. This trifling place wouldn't even be numbered among the clans of its tribe, Judah. And you can check this for yourself, by the way, if you just want to go back to Joshua 15. You can read in verse 20 and following that, that Bethlehem is not significant enough to make the list of Judah's tribes. It's just assumed as a part of the larger picture. And so the reader is reminded of the origin story of the great king David. You remember when Samuel went out to search for a king? You remember what happened. His father brought out all of David's brothers because David himself was, well, it's too small to even be considered to be counted. Well, this is true of his birthplace as well. Bethlehem falls in the same category, insignificant. And yet this is where hope will arise from, an inconsequential place. What's happening here? Well, uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke is a Old Testament and Hebrew scholar. He's a PhD graduate of Harvard and arguably one of the seminal scholars on Micah, he explains this so well. This is what he writes. He writes about the place where, that Bethlehem is the place where hope is coming through, and it is lowly and despised to emphasize that it is through sovereign grace alone that this Messiah becomes great. Prophet Micah is looking at God's people in this storm and saying, the hope that is coming to you is one that is beyond you. To prove this, to prove that it's not from you, I'm going to pick the most trifling place possible to bring an external hope to you, a hope from the outside in. Isn't this just radically countercultural to the American ethic? I mean, as Americans, we love a good self-made hero story, don't we? We love it when the, the weak person looks down within themselves and musters up from within the power and will to conquer. Underneath all of us is really just a, a Superman outfit, just waiting to be broken out. Hope from within. 
Realize you're strong. Just believe in yourself. Just this week, I was reading an author who highlighted a, a New York Times ad about Christmas. So New York Times, which, which said this. The ad said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph. Okay, fair enough. And that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Really? How's that going? I mean, in other words, they're saying we have what it takes. We love to think that we have enough. Look deep inside, muster up all enough willpower, try harder, believe in yourself, and you can do it. We prefer to wish in an inside-out hope. Look inside and bring it out. Don't think about the fact that it hasn't worked before. Don't think about last year's New Year's resolutions. No, no, no. Just look forward and look into yourself. Just try harder. Well, Scripture is constantly giving us a hope that is beyond ourselves. Israel was not to look anywhere in her own significance for greatness. Jerusalem would not save the day. God would choose the most trifling place possible to show that hope, the hope he was sending, was a hope from the outside in. You know, this week I was uh, speaking with a local shop owner. I'll just call him Mike. And in the course of the conversation, uh, Mike found out that I'm a pastor. Now, often when someone finds this out, I get a response that's a bit like I'm wearing like these x-ray glasses. I can just see straight through them. Uh, I can't, by the way, uh, but he was nervous that maybe I could. And so he starts immediately explaining himself and, and telling me why he wasn't going to church recently. Interestingly, Mike explained how in his own words, he really knew all he needed to do himself. He said he had a good sense of right and wrong, and he just needed to work harder to start doing what he really should do. Now, I think Mike's perspective is actually incredibly common. I think most of us naturally feel this way. We know that we generally need to be a better person, we just need to work harder. So maybe let's try again at the new year. Friends, the message of Christmas, the message of Christianity, is that we don't just need to work harder from within ourselves. The whole point of Christmas is that we need something from beyond ourselves to break into this reality. Bethlehem, too trifling among the clans of Judah, is meant to be a living illustration of this. That when God chose to intervene into the world, he picked a place that Israel would never misunderstand as their own best efforts, but rather would signal a landing place for an external hope. The hope of Christmas is one that is beyond us. Uh, not only that, but Michael is saying to Israel that your hope in the midst of darkness is a hope that is over you. So here's the main thrust of the prophetic hope. Something is coming for Israel. It's coming for, from Bethlehem. And we find in the middle of the verse what it is. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. 
God's people here are promised a ruler who will be over them. This word ruler is exactly what it seems. It's someone who would reign over them, like a prince or a king. Now, uh, immediately in today's world, uh, I, I'm just assuming that statistically most of us here have a strong aversion or a hesitancy to the idea of having a rule over us. Uh, this doesn't sound like a reason for hope. In fact, I could go into this. I don't have time. Sociologists have tracked this over the last century or more in our culture, this rising cynicism to authority, this rise of egalitarianism and individualistic uh, perspectives. Having a ruler over you just doesn't sound like a good thing to most of us here. Uh, but let me just say this. If you're wary of having a ruler over you, the audience, the original audience of this prophecy had even more reasons to be than you do. And let me show you from Micah. You see that one of the main themes that you would see if we we're studying this whole book uh, across Micah is that, that this dark storm cloud was largely in part to a, an appalling situation of leadership in Israel. And there was this uh, trend of just abusive leadership over them that was just killing them. Not only that, but Micah is actually promising, is telling the people, it's going to get worse. More evil leadership is coming. You can literally see this across the whole book. Chapter 2, it's, it's all about the abuse of, of rulers. Verse 2, they're, they're coveting and seizing fields and houses from the people under them. Uh, chapter 3, the heads of the nations of, nation of Israel were denounced. Verse 2, the people leading them had hated good and they had loved evil. This is just a bleak picture of authority. Down in verse 9, uh, the leaders had detested justice. They had made crooked paths out of straight ones. Not only that, but later in chapter 5, right after our passage, Micah correctly predicts the invasion of Assyria, which came with the foreign king Sennacherib in 705 B.C., so if you're a skeptic of being ruled over, they had even more reason to be than you do. And yet, what we need is not just the absence of a bad authority. We need the presence of a good one. Honestly, you all know this to be all tr true already. You could just ask any child whose father has abandoned them. They'll tell you, what I don't want is just not a bad father. I want a good dad that's here. Or you could just go to any country that is lawless and doesn't have a good government in place. And what they'll tell you is, what, what we don't want is just not a bad government. We want a good presence of a government here. Friends, this is the hope that, of Christmas that Mike was introducing. As we look into the, the radiance of the beauty of this prophecy, what we see is a ruler who is caring, strong, beautiful, secure, and personal. Is, all, is the complete passage. Look down at verse 4. I'm just going to skip ahead of our passage just for a minute, just so you can see the point. In verse 4 we read, And he, this coming ruler, sh shall stand and shepherd his flock. So this, this is a caring ruler that's promised to come. It's the picture of shepherding. It's a gentle attention for his sheep. He is going to be a shepherd king. 
Or look down right after that. He says, he shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So this coming ruler who will shepherd is not a weak one who's unable to shepherd. He's fully able. In fact, his strength is unparalleled. It's from God. It's the strength of God. Or look down to the next phrase there in verse 4. Michael writes, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So this ruler of Israel will not only be caring and strong, but he will be majestic. He'll be glorious in beauty. His majesty will be desirable. It will draw us into him. And yet it will be good for his people. Look down even further. He says, and they shall dwell secure. Security. Worry-free dwelling. This is not just for Israel, but his domain will be expansive. And Micah writes, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now already, this, this ruler who's promised, I mean, he's the archetype of a perfect leader. He's the full package, the perfect ideal. And yet, notice how personal this shepherd king will be. We've already read that he'll give security. Look at verse 5, first line there. We read, and he shall be their peace. Not he will offer them peace. Not he will find them peace. Not he will bring them peace. No. He shall be their peace. This is more intimate and more accessible than any king you or I could imagine. He himself is coming in his person to be Israel's peace. This verse is saying that peace is not just a byproduct of Christianity. As if Jesus could be your means to better life. Come become a Christian and you'll get a better life. That's not what's happening here. Uh, as if Jesus would come and just give it to you and then leave. As if it would be possible to even do that. As if it would be possible to have peace apart from Jesus Christ. No, that, that's, what, that's what Santa does. Santa comes, he, he drops off the gifts, he eats the cookies, and he leaves. That's what an absent father does. He drops off the obligatory check, and he doesn't show up. No, that's what other religions offer when they give you a pathway to peace, a path of doing enough. Get yourself together and go down that road far enough and you'll find peace. Oh, but no, 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 no. Christianity is far more compelling and arresting than that. The hope of Christmas is that we have a shepherd king who comes and he offers himself to be our security and our peace. Christmas means you get Jesus. Jesus isn't just delivering a gift. Jesus is the gift. Authority and intimacy are brought together in Jesus Christ. So let me just speak here briefly on this to any Christians who are in the room today. As you hear me explaining this type of shepherd king that Christmas brings us, you should worship your Lord Jesus Christ. 
if he's this good of a shepherd king, you should also want to make sure your whole life stays under his rule. I mean, not just the easy parts of your life. Uh, you should put all of your life right under his rule, happily and gladly, holding nothing back. He's a good king. You can trust him to reign over you. Just give it all to him, every single part of it. This is one reason we live in community together in a church. This is one reason why we are so intent on gathering regularly and knowing one another, because we want to make sure that we're putting ourselves under this king. So Christians, as you, as you worship this ruler, uh, perhaps one way that you could do this, let me just make the suggestion, take 15 minutes this afternoon and open up to, back to verse 4 here, the, the, the verse I just quickly sped through. And maybe just spend a few minutes praying on each line of this text. It just is a wonderful way of, of helping to celebrate Christmas. Just spend a couple minutes praising God for this type of shepherd king that is coming that has come. I'm going to speak not only to Christians, let me speak to anyone here who isn't a Christian today. Or maybe, maybe to those who say you're a Christian, but honestly, you know it's in name only. You can admit that Jesus isn't really king in your life. Uh, dear friends, the, the hope of Christmas is that Jesus Christ has come to reign over us. I hope you can see how attractive this type of kingship is. Let me just ask you, what if it were true? Like, what if this whole story actually was true? And we really were in this much trouble. And there was no way out of it. And the one who could save us actually did save us. And what if he then actually did promise to be this kind of authority in your life, this type of shepherd king. If it could be true, wouldn't you want it to be true? Isn't it that good? You can't have his shepherding care and his eternal peace, not only for this life, but for eternity. You can't have that without him and his rule. It's a package deal. They go together. And so Christians believe that the Bible says we have wronged God. Christians believe that the Bible says we've been separated from God. That, is, that humanity, we know that we don't do the things we ought to do. Christians believe that there's no true solution to this. Except through God himself intervening. Coming to earth. Living a perfect life on our behalf. Dying in our place. Taking the penalty of our sin upon himself and then rising from the grave so that we would now only need to look to him in faith. We don't have to do anything to earn this. We merely look and God's word says, believe and trust in this to be true. And when we do this, it just changes us radically. I wonder if this could be true, would you want it to be true? Jesus Christ is that perfect shepherd king. If it's new for you today, let me just encourage you, just talk to someone today about this message of the gospel. I'll be standing right there in the back. You could come talk to me. You could talk to anyone else in this church who could explain it to you, perhaps answer some of the doubts that you have. Consider this king. 
well, time is short, we should move towards a conclusion. I, I've, I've made an argument for why you need this hope to be beyond you, and, and why and how this hope is a beautiful hope of one that is being over you. But perhaps I haven't yet convinced you yet of why you can trust this hope. You see, uh, this verse in Micah's prophecy ends with telling Israel that the hope of Christmas is not just one that is beyond you and over you. It's a hope that was before you. What do I mean by this? Before you. What what does Micah mean by this? Look with me at the end of verse 2. We read, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. How is the hope of Christmas something that comes before us? Okay, uh, just stay with me here. Uh, To get to my point, I want to just tap into the biblical idea of what hope is. So commentators often point out, I think uh, Dr. Timothy Keller is one of the ones that explains this so well, that the biblical idea of hope, uh, when we read it in the Bible, it just has a, a different lexical range than what we use in English. So in English, uh, your child tells you, I hope I get a new bike for Christmas, right? And hope in that sentence means, I'm wishful that this will happen. I'm not certain it will, but I wish it to be true. That's what hope means. Or we actually even use it in English to emphasize uncertainty. You can say to someone, I'll see you at the Christmas party. And the response is, can be, well, I I hope to come. Hope means uh, I'm wishful, wishful thinking of an uncertain reality. It's, It's not yet definite. But the Bible doesn't use hope this way. In the Bible, it's not wishful thinking in an uncertain reality. In the Bible, hope is confident expectation of a certain reality. That's how hope is used in the Bible. So we read uh, Titus 2.13, the return of Jesus Christ is our blessed hope. It's a confident expectation. Or Romans 5.5, hope does not put us to shame. With this confident expectation we have. Okay, why am I going down on this rabbit trail? Why is this important? Well, when the Bible wants to communicate to you hope in darkness, to communicate this confident expectation of a certain reality, the Bible consistently looks backwards at what God has done to remind us that he will be faithful in the future. So you can just look at the, the Israelites Uh, God is constantly telling the Israelites, look back at the Exodus, look back at how I delivered you, and trust that I will now. Well, here, here in this great prophecy of the greatest coming Messiah, in a book that's filled with just darkness and judgment, in a book where, honestly, things are about to get worse for Micah, Before they get better, Micah is giving a hope of a coming ruler who is beyond them. And where does he establish his confidence for the nature of this Messiah? Where does he sink his roots into so that you can have trust in this this oak tree? 
If, if hope is the, the building up of confidence, where are the, the, the footings of this building? Where are they going down to? And, and how deep does this foundation go? Look at the text. Micah says, this ruler is coming, coming forth from of old, from ancient days. So Micah is instilling confidence for hope. Can you count on this Messiah, O Israel? Can you have confidence that he'll come through? Just look back. The one who is coming forth from Bethlehem has a coming forth that is before Bethlehem. Bethlehem isn't the starting place for this king. It is his earthly starting place. But if you want the real origin story of this Messiah, well, you need to know he is from of old. As Psalm 74 says, God, my God, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. His starting place is from ancient days. This phrase, ancient days, get this, it literally means days of eternity. So this ruler is from those days, the days that are from eternity, the days that are from before there was actually days. Church, I assert to you that this person is unique. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah who has indeed come, just as was prophesied here 730 years before he was born, who came as the Messiah in the form of a man, who, is, who is, came having already existed in the form of God, took on human flesh. And God, when he wants to offer this hope to you of this coming Messiah, he says to us, look back. Look back to my eternal nature, which goes back farther than your minds can understand. It's a road that, that if you look back on, you'll find it, it stretches farther than you can even see. If you search down to the root of this stump of Jesse, you'll find that it keeps going down and down and down. Our hope of a promise of a Messiah is founded in a hope that stretches to eternity past. He is before you. You know, I, I once heard uh, a pastor sharing how he spoke to his young son who was constantly asking the why question. You know, why should I trust you? Why should I do what you say? And he'd always kind of want a good reason to do and to believe what the father was saying. You know, just give me proof and I'll do it. Uh, and at some point it became apparent to this pastor that he needed to tell us then, well, you don't need to trust me just because I'm giving you enough reasons. You also need to trust me because I'm 40 and you're six. I mean, I have far more insight and far more resources to use for your good than you could possibly even get your mind around. I mean, if you're a six-year-old, like, if you only follow me when you have it all figured out, I mean, you're going to last, like, two hours. But the thing is, God, if he's a God who is eternal, has a gap between us and him that is not just the gap between a 40-year-old and a 6-year-old. It's an infinite, eternal gap. And if Christ is this good shepherd king, 
And if he is coming from eternity past, he is indeed trustworthy. He is indeed worthy of being your hope. Our hope of a Messiah is one that's founded in eternity past. So, go enjoy the nostalgia. Enjoy the lights, enjoy the trees. But know that the miracle of Christmas is that a timeless, eternal God entered time and space for us. He's existed far beyond us, so let him be your hope this Christmas. Place your confidence in the one who is beyond you, over you, and before you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you and we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came as was promised for centuries on end. We thank you that he is the one who existed before time and space and creation existed. Father, we thank you that he is trustworthy. Father, we pray that you would give us the gift of faith, of believing, of looking to the reliability of this shepherd king. We pray that you would let us put ourselves under his good reign and rule. We praise in the name of Jesus Christ.